WNYC Studios is supported by Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as a premier litigation and investigations firm. Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations, and law firms in business disputes, government, and internal investigations, and at trial. When the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Uh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <coughs> you're listening, listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. Shorts. <laughs> From WNYC. Yes. And NPR. Hey, I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krolwich. This is Radio Lab, the podcast. Okay, so Robert, here's a question that I've been puzzling over uh, for a long time. Okay. What is the fruitiest fruit that you know? My fruitiest fruit yeah. is a plum. Well, no. I mean, that, well, that's yours. I, mean, yes. not, I don't want to take that away from you. No, you shouldn't. But when you ask most people that question, they say apple or orange. <laughs> no, I mean, it's true. Scientists have figured out that when you make a category in your mind, you're not doing it based on like a set list of traits. You're like, you, what you do is you call to mind the prototypical example of that category, and then you measure this new thing against it. And for fruits, prototype is the gala apple, if you ask me, the red, shiny, waxy apple. You say there's somebody who's decided that an apple is the fruity fruit? They've, they've done experiments. Oh, they've done experiments. They've done experiments. I bet you bananas outpole apples for consumption. Maybe. But that's not what makes a fruitiest fruit a fruity fruit. It's more about, like, how well it represents the category. Okay. That's what it's about. Why are we talking about this, though? Well, because I've been wanting to explore this in story form. Forever. Forever. But you never have a story, so it's like a, you never find a story. But I got one now. You did? What? It's not about fruit, though. What is it about? It's about this. That's what, <laughs> what, is it, what are you talking about? <laughs> Let me explain. Hey. So we met this guy, Andrew Morantz. I work at The New Yorker as an editor, and I uh, write stuff occasionally. Wandered in here one day by mistake, I think. Super interesting guy, great reporter. And he ended up talking with us about this story he was reporting for The New Yorker about hip-hop. There are all kinds of rappers who are trying to sing. And how hip-hop might be changing. Uh, Because as we all know, this was a genre of music that began in a really specific time and place. Bronx, 70s, black and Latino kids. But it's since expanded so much that these inevitable questions pop up. You know, to really simplify it, the more white people come to the party, the more you kind of start going, okay, at what point is it, it's clearly, a, it, it can clearly, it's clearly okay if everyone in the room is black. And it's okay if everyone in the room is black except for one guy. You know, if, yeah. if, if Rick Rubin's at the party, but it's still, you know, black people at the tunnel in 1989 or whatever, it's still okay. But at what point, okay, if it's 50% white, if it's 75% white, if all the people who own the record labels are white, if a majority of the popular rappers are white, like at what point? And that's just the racial thing. Yeah. Then there's also the, sonically the way it sounds. There's the way the production is kind of merged with other forms of music. So then all of a sudden you're at a point where you get the sense that there's somehow inherently – that there's something being replaced or taken over. Mm-hmm. You start to have this dilemma. Which is – you know, who owns the music now? And the dilemma is obviously heightened by the fact that everyone knew this was coming. Like, it, there's never been a form of American popular music 
as far as I know, that wasn't invented by black people and co-opted by white people. And Andrew, in his piece and in this story, uh, focuses on a guy who sits right at the heart of that dilemma. One of the most influential DJs in hip-hop today. Peter Rosenberg, is that his name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So tell, tell me how you came to him. Um, I mean, the first thing was... Hot 97, the most important hip-hop radio station in the world. Listening to... Hot, hot 97. Hot 97. Because I like rap and I want to know what is popular. Mm-hmm. And I was listening and I heard this guy who they kept calling Rosenberg. Rosenberg. And I was like, is that Rosenberg? Is that like Whoopi Goldberg Rosenberg? Like, what does that mean? Uh-huh. And then I looked him up and I was like, no, it's just a guy named Peter Rosenberg. One, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. I mean, listen, doing NPR is already pretty soft. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> he actually works just down the block from us. Is this going to hurt your cred in some sense? <laughs> I know, possibly. So he's a guy um, born in 1979. He grew up in... I grew up in Chevy Chase, Maryland. Um, is that is... Chevy with a CH? Yes, it is. And Peter says when he was about nine, his brother... My brother's name is Nick Rosenberg. His brother started staying up late and making tapes. DJ Red Alert, Marley Marl. He would start taping those guys on the radio. At that point, 1987, 98, here in New York, they were the only two people playing hip-hop, and it was late at night. And at the time, I didn't consider myself a music person. I was only eight, but I really was like, oh, music's okay, but I'm really in... I'm just obsessed with sports. And then at some point, I was like, oh, no, no. I, I love this. It was punk, it was rebellious, it was interesting, it was just cool. You know, now, to, to be honest, it's almost cliched when people say that, like, who would ever guess you'd be into hip-hop? I'm like, I don't know. I would, because I know a million white kids who are into hip-hop. At that time, though, it was not common. It was very much something that was a badge of honor for both of us, that we really, really loved it. And I was extra cool, because I was super young. I remember one day, here's a great thing, I traded Javon my poison tape. I had Poison's album on tape. Every Rose Has a Thorn album. I traded that Poison tape for his Bismarcky tape. I was like, this is the best trade ever. (laughs) It was Biz is going off. Like, it's a classic album. And then, it, and then at some point, my dad went out. He was coming home from work one day, and he said he stopped it. Nobody beats the Wiz. He asked the guy behind the counter what, like, the good rap albums were. And uh, the kid actually gave him a pretty good recommendation, and he bought me a, a tape called Girls I Got Em Locked by Super Lover C and Casanova Rudd. <laughs> what a father you have. I know. So my knowledge base was always very high very early. I had some friends in elementary school, and we would talk about rap a little bit, but quickly I exceeded them. And then I got to high school, and I really took seriously being the rap guy. When I heard the passion in Public Enemy, like, that resonated with me. Like, I think NWA scared me. But made me interested. I just thought, this is crazy. I was like, yo, these guys are killing people. Like, this is really happening. Like, I was really, it really happening or were you going to the movies in song form? I was going to the movies, but to me, I, I didn't know the line. 
Okay, so Peter goes off to college, mid-90s. Did college radio. Hip-hop show. And then, as he gets out, decides he wants to do this for real. He secretly, you know, wanted to be a hip-hop DJ, but people were not taking him seriously. You know, white kid from the suburbs, didn't compute. He couldn't get on what was then called urban radio. So I ended up doing a year on the Howard Stern station. He was doing, like, talk radio, you know. WHFS, which I was part-time. Whatever kind of radio. So he kept calling Hot 97, and the, the program director then was a white guy from Utah. You know, I gave him my spiel. I was like, I'm super passionate about hip-hop. I'm super honest. I don't think there's ever been someone who looks like me and is from my background who has as honest and loud a voice as me. I, I really think I'll be something different. And he basically said, I don't doubt you. But no, you. what are you talking about? I mean, they had token white people on various shows. But it was either you're super white, like Lisa G, she was on the morning show for a little while. I remember that. She was super white. And that was kind of the joke. Or you were Bobby Condors, who does the Sunday night radio, reggae show, who you would never know he's white. Because he just talks like he's Jamaican and he only plays Jamaican music. He only hangs out with Jamaican people. So you had to be one of those two things. Where you denied your whiteness or you just were like, I'm going to... I'm going to be the butt of the joke. White bosses have often been like, you're really talented, but I don't know. Would people really like you? Like, we don't... They talk to me the way we're talking right now and think if I'm able to relate to you this way, why would our audience relate to you? If I say yes, then why would my audience say yes with me? Because, because they assume their audience is so different than them. Which might have been true for a while. And then... 2007, Ebro Darden took over. Ebro Darden in the building. What's up, man? How you doing, sir? I'm doing great, man. I was just. This is I him was, on air, Ebro. A half black, half Jewish guy from Oakland, and he got it. Did hip hop had changed? It's no longer so small and simple and provincial that we can go on pretending this is only a black and Latino thing. So when Peter came to the station and gave him the pitch, hey, I'm PMD, which was my old name back then, because I'm P P for Peter and MD for Maryland. You can call me PMD. And Ebro was like, no, you're Rosenberg. <laughs> Ebro gave me my parents' name, more or less. He, he was like, the, the hook is that that's your name. Hot 97, Peter Rosenberg, Summer Jam 2007. There's a video on, on YouTube of, uh, it's called, I think, Peter Rosenberg does Summer Jam 2007. And it was my first day on the job. Summer Jam is the biggest event of the year at Hot 97. It's this big show at Giant Stadium. All the top acts. I showed up there, and so my first day was just walking into Giant Stadium, parking my car by myself, getting a backstage pass, and being given a mic flag that says Hot 97, the place I've always wanted to work, and being told, go up to all the famous artists who are here and just get interviewed. And if you go back and watch that video and see how much of an ass I make of myself, <laughs> I say, to T.I., I think I go, is this your first summer jam? First T.I., have you done a summer jam before? And he looks at whoever he's with, and <laughs> they both start laughing. I'm, I'm asking. Have you done many summer jams? Today is your first day on the job. My first day on the job. I, you I, could, I, I could tell. <laughs> and I cannot believe in retrospect I survived this day. Cypher Sounds and Rosenberg Show with K-Fox on Hot 97. Not only survived, he became the host of two shows on Hot 97, uh, a late night underground show and also the big weekday morning show. And Rosenberg's brand is all about realness. The realness. His segment in the morning is called The Realness. His late night show, Sunday night to Monday morning, is called Real Late with Peter Rosenberg. Mm. It's all real, real, real. It's going to be real. Really real. Keeping it real, 
Is it real? Because that's the that's the central question. Can I be a real hip hop guy, even though I'm Peter Rosenberg from suburban Maryland? Well, I think you're I think you're raising an interesting point. Most outsiders rarely become insiders. But Peter says the key to understanding him is that he's kind of both. Like, on the one hand, he is this suburban white kid from Maryland. He doesn't pretend to be anything but. But on the other hand... I mean, a big part of Rosenberg's job is to go to shows and blogs and get tapes from people and find the new thing. So he has a stable of, like, 20 or 30 underground artists who are making tapes and, you know, trying to pass around beats. And what's more insidery than that? Plus... He is, like, a purist. I've always liked... Uh, there's a, a certain pure form of hip-hop. And because You know, that, in the kind of rap nerd community, they talk about certain things that are like lyrics and listening for the metaphors and the, the intricacies of the music. They talk about boom-bap beats. In the trade of that old boom bap. Big sounding, drum-wise. Boom-bap, like a... Kick, snare, kicks a hi-hat. Boom-bap, original rap. It's just a feeling of sound, of energy. This is Ali. Ali Shaheed Muhammad. A Tribe Called Quest. We call him up because he is the DJ and producer for A Tribe Called Quest. And for Peter, Tribe, they're the prototype. I was obsessed with them. They were, they are, like that shiny red apple. They define the category. And in fact... I guess up until my wedding weekend... Best weekend of his life, he says. Or I guess now it would be his second best, was when he was... I was 14. And he went to a Tribe show. It was... Everything I ever dreamed a hip-hop concert experience would be. He says he spent the whole time at the front of the stage waving this hat around that said dogs. D-A-W-G-S. Because one of the lead rappers was named Fife Dog. And I held up my dog's hat so much at the concert that eventually Fife... The Fife. The Fife Dog acknowledged me the same way I would do now if I was hosting and someone kept doing it. He just gave me the hand like, I got it. You can put the hat down now. This was a weird moment for hip-hop, not just for Peter, but for hip-hop in general. Like, the early 90s, this was a moment when you had stations like Hot 97 converting to all hip-hop formats, playing, you know, NWA, Public Enemy, Tribe Called Quest, groups, you know, that were suddenly attracting loads of white suburban fans. Yet, if you listen to their lyrics, some of them at least, they were about stuff those fans could have never experienced. Struggle, oppression lack of opportunities in the ghettos. The fact that you have young black teenagers who are living in a society where they're told that they will never amount to anything and that their lives have no value, no worth. That to me becomes the the angst and the frustration and the rage, which is the the embodiment of the the music. I wanted to be a part of this of black culture. Like, I, I felt... I, I, I've i always been very interested in loving things that required defense. And hip-hop is definitely that. From the beginning, it was initially shunned by black radio because it was thought to be indecent. Then you had the whole Tipper Gore thing. I love things like that. I don't know why. And I think I do always see hip-hop in, in that sort of light, in the way that it needs defense. Uh, can we talk about um, your, your fracas with um, Nicki Minaj? Of course. That's my paragraph, so, too. If, God forbid, I drop dead tomorrow. It's Peter Rosenberg on Hot 97, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Next paragraph. In 2012... <laughs> Nicki Minaj um, is this rapper from Queens, hugely talented rapper. 
Oh, wait, is she, she's not the one on American Idol, yeah. is she? Oh, okay. Now I have a face for the name. Uh-huh. Okay. And she kind of blew everyone away on this Kanye song called Monster. You know, she was with all these big rappers, and Jay-Z was on the song, and she blew everyone out of the water. First things first, I'll eat your brain. Then I'm going to start rocking gold teeth and fame. Because that's what I'm going to make a monster do. Here, dress up from Milan, that's the I thought she was really good. I thought she was a natural and uh, beautiful. Like, I thought she was the total package. Um, in fact, the year before it all happened, 2011, um, I pulled her aside at Summer Jam and I said, hey, I think you could be the greatest female artist of all time, the greatest female rap artist of all time. Wow. And I just want you to know that in thinking that, I'm, I'm going to hold you to a high standard, so I probably will say things about you. You said all of that? Yeah, in a really quick moment, too. It was really brief. She probably wouldn't Jeez. even remember it, but it happened. <laughs> I would remember that if someone said that. I, and I said, I think you could be the greatest. She had all this underground cred, right? And, and then how did she spend that cred? Well, she started making poppier and poppier records. Culminating in the following song, which, if you are me, you've not been able to get out of your head for a week. She made this song called Starships. Let's go to the beach. Each, let's go get away. They say what they gonna say. Have a drink. Starships is a blatant pop song. Lowest common denominator. So I didn't I didn't like the song. You listen to that song and you cannot tell that it's not a song by Katy Perry or Pink or it could be anyone. So all of a sudden, who is the underground cred? Cop. Sounds and Rosenberg show but Kane. Peter Rosenberg. Sometimes I gotta keep it real. Can I though for a second? Several mornings for his segment called The Realness, he would get on there and play a play a clip of Starship. Check out this hip hop. <laughs> if that's hardcore hip hop, then would this song be considered another hardcore hip hop song? That's not fair. That's not fair. Maybe she's just... You know, there is a real question being asked at the center of this, which is, what is this music? Where the boundaries are? And also, is this where hip-hop is going? Is it just, let me cash in and just follow the trends of what white music is doing? Would it be too strong to call it like you felt betrayed as a, as a music fan? Yeah, it felt like, come on. We, I, it just In the moment, it felt like... You're a, you're a hip hop star. Why would you why would you do this? This is a this is not for us. When core hip hop artists make pop songs, it upsets me because it's it can be a moment that blurs and messes up hip hop. To be frank, this song right here, Starship, is literally one of the most sellout songs in hip hop history. Just to put that comment in a little, tiny bit more context for just a second. Now, we mentioned, of course, the history, right? That so many forms of popular music have been invented by black people, co-opted by white people, jazz, blues, rock. We all know the story. Now, according to Franny Kelly... One of the hosts of a podcast called Microphone Check. Which is a hip-hop podcast. From NPR Music. According to her... 2013 was the first year that no black artist had a number one song. And Since 1958... Since they started the Hot 100 charts, this is the first year where no black artist has made it to number one. Now, this may be a blip, may not be, but what's clear is that there is a new force in town, a style of music called EDM. EDM is is a, a meaningless 
acronym that stands for electronic dance music. And it's like, you know... It's more like an than a boom bap. It's sort of an amalgam of synthy, dancey, techno, euro, poppy stuff, and it has taken over. What happened with EDM was just so glaring and fast. And then to see that sort of start to creep into hip-hop was scary for people. Because according to Franny Kelly, what's scary is that EDM is a style of music that's meant to work on any dance floor with any crowd. So in a way, it's like a music without history on purpose. A lot of the criticism of like EDM is that it is all about money. It is the corporatization of a genre with a long history. So in some ways, I think the root of the protest is don't sell our stuff to the highest bidder. It's a little context. Anyhow, after... One of the most sellout songs in hip-hop history. Whoa. Whoa. Listen to it! After Peter Trash Talks, Nicki Minaj's Starships... We arrive at that year's Summer Jam. 2012. And that year, Nicki Minaj was going to be one of the big headliners. Plan was for her to perform on the main stage inside Giant Stadium. But outside the stadium in the parking lot... Earlier in the day... There's the festival stage, which is where the underground backpack kids hang out. And that's Rosenberg's zone. So he's introducing the acts on that stage. Now hold on, before I get to the real hip-hop of the day, because I see the real hip-hop heads sprinkled in here, I see them. I said in trying to hype up this crowd. I know there's some chicks here waiting to sing Starships later. I'm not talking to y'all right now. F*** that bullshit. Crowd kind of goes, ooh, and cheer. A little bit. Like, there's a cheer. Nothing crazy, though. Just a regular cheer. It's not like a, I didn't realize a bomb was dropped. I, f- I forgot that not only was the festival stage live streaming, but it was live streaming on her website. <gasps> and her core fans her barbs as they're known are 13 year old girls and when they see peter say that they go wild and they go out on the internet saying who is this rosenberg guy what is his deal and he says within minutes it it got back to nikki and her people before she went on stage before she went on stage oh this is interesting so then there's this backstage conversation Rosenberg, basically, as soon as he gets off stage, his boss... My boss comes out, pokes his head around the curtain and goes, did you say something about Nicki Minaj? I was like, uh... And I I legit didn't remember. I'm like, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, I did. And he's like, yeah, well, she just canceled the show. So she's not coming. And I was like, I was like, oh. And I looked at my phone and I go to Twitter, sitting on the stage, the crowd's all out there. I'm at Giant Stadium. And I look on Twitter and I go to Trends And on the main trend page, it just says Peter Rosenberg. And I was like, oh, wow, this is nuts. This is a Sunday afternoon at like five o'clock. And I was like the third most trending thing in the world. I was just watching my name get bigger in a moment. One of the big dramas that happened in New York. I was reading just my name over and over and over again. The dude Rosenberg, the dude from High 97. Peter Rosenberg. All these people saying, I don't know who this guy is, but he's dissing my favorite artist. I'm just really disappointed and I don't understand how she... I was reading, who is this guy? What he said, that Starship song was not hip-hop. Peter Rosenberg. Man, that's not real hip-hop. One man say one thing and everybody suffers for this. He must have gotten some serious cred from this. He, yes, not only was his name getting out there, but it was getting out there as I'm the gatekeeper. I'm the defender. I'm the defender of the real, the realness. 
I couldn't appreciate it at first because I didn't know if I was maybe going to get fired for messing up Summer Jam. Because Nikki isn't beefing with the station. I wouldn't dare come on your stage or even say something to my fans. She's calling in, you know, mad at the station. You apologize to Nikki. Uh, Buster Rhymes gets involved. He's trying to broker a deal. <laughs> Funkmaster Flex gets involved. We exchanged some emails. They're trying to reach a detente. Wow. It, it becomes a <laughs> months-long process. Nuts. If they say unanimously, no, you were wrong about that song. This is our song. We included in our map of what's going on. Stop trying to draw the map. What do you say to that in your inside of you? I think my gut reaction is you know nothing. You don't draw the map. You need people like us to draw the map or there's nothing or what is there. If if we don't get to determine certain things, uh, who who does? We should leave that to the crazed 13-year-olds who may not even like this artist in two years? As a woman hearing that... It's Franny Kelly again. This idea that young girls will hear starships and say, oh, that's hip-hop, that's what I want to hear, that's what I'm going to judge everything against, is wildly unfair <laughs> to the intelligence of young girls. Franny says they can figure out the difference between hip-hop and pop. They don't need help. It's insulting. And furthermore... When he chose starships to single out, it felt revealing of another layer to this debate that people weren't saying out loud. Which is it when people refer to things as, quote, real hip-hop. That's usually code for aggressive, street, masculine. Authentic. Whereas when they say pop, that's usually code for... Feminine, which is a perversion of the music, period. And so there is this idea that, you know, people make songs for the ladies, which implies that all the rest of them are songs that we can't hear or, God forbid, understand. Okay, so all of this was swirling around months go by, and then... Fast forward to the week before the next Summer Jam. This is 2014? 2013, I mean? 2013, yeah. The feud is still going. At this point, it's a year later. But, according to Andrew, Nikki decides it's time to settle. Maybe because she wanted to perform at that year's Summer Jam. So, Nikki Minaj sits down with radio station Hot 97 to clear the air with DJ Peter Rosenberg. She comes to the station before summer jam to make her peace and they do this whole interview with rosenberg and Nicki minaj and ebro the boss really? is is moderating Ooh. on the air on the air rosenberg so this is on you sir um where would you like this interview to go um i don't know i'm excited i'm excited to see Nicki because uh it's very odd to have someone that you don't know very well who's become like such a fixture in your life like I've always wondered, I was always like, I wonder if Nikki knows that she's come up every day in my life for 350 days. Like, point that where Starships got played at my wedding, and it was like the biggest deal at my wedding was Starships playing at my wedding. After some opening remarks, Peter basically apologizes. I am sorry that things went as left as they did. I never had ill feelings about you as a human being, ever. Basically says, I have nothing against you as a person. Beyond my sort of distaste for that song. That's cool. It's water under the bridge. Do you mean that? Yeah. I mean, she then goes out of her way to apologize to her fans for skipping out on the gig. But, um... Then the gloves come off. You know what? Like, I get it. Like, that's what you do. I guess, to me, I just don't know your resume. You know what I'm saying? So, I never found you funny. I never found you entertaining. I never found you smart. I just found you annoying. Because, you know, I grew up in New York. I've grown up on Hot 97. Like, I know Angie and I know Flex and Mr. C and all these people. Whether they like me or whether or not we get along, I just know their resume. But, like, with you, I was just like, who 
are you? I don't recognize you as an authority on what's authentic. To me, you don't have enough of a resume to make those comments. Who are you to tell me what to do? What people don't understand mm. is that when I came, when I was doing this, I took a lot of from people, from men. She was like, my whole career, there have just been random men who have like been in a position to stop me and tell me why I'm not good enough. I just, I just dealt with a lot of stuff from guys. And here you are. I don't know you. You're just some random man. And then Ebro jumps in and kind of jokingly trying to lighten the mood goes, and you're white. I didn't even say that. White I never, she never implied oh. anything about white. Well, she implied being, the man. I did. And then she jumps in and goes, no, 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 that too. Being white also struck a chord with me, if I'm being honest, because I was like, yo, he's on a black station dissing black people. Like, I don't, I don't, I just didn't like the feel of it. And here you get back to that idea, that category idea that like, when you don't have that like set list of criteria to help you figure out who's in and who's out, it's all about a gut feeling. And to Nicki Minaj at that moment, to have a white guy from the suburbs tell her, a black woman from Queens, that she's not hip hop enough, it just felt wrong. But then Ali Shaheed Muhammad from Tribe Called Quest put it this way. Maybe it feels wrong, but maybe this is actually evolution. 40 years into it, that's what it's supposed to be. At some point, we're all going to be so far removed from the origin that no one would then qualify, really. But if you're going to be the person to carry the torch, I guess, to be the gatekeeper, then at some point, what qualifies you? It's your heart. It's that feeling. You could be Bill Gates' kid and still understand the struggle enough to be like, yo, I'm riding with that. Yeah. And I want to fight for that. I was like, yo, he's on a black station dissing black people. Like, I don't, I don't, I just didn't like the feel of it. Who am I going to diss if not black people? I'm on a hip-hop station. I have to diss black people sometimes. I, if I diss white Absolutely rappers... Absolutely not. You watch your mouth, sir. You only want me to go at Mac you, Miller? I mean, who am I going to go at? And Mac Lamore. And Mac Lamore. We have it? plenty of artists now. I used to only diss white rappers, but as I've gotten further along, I, I felt I earned the right to diss all <laughs> things all I didn't like. Races. Okay. I was like, no, we oh, yeah. Rosenberg to this day takes credit for her saying my next project is going to be a, a hardcore hip hop album. When her album's awesome, you will see me take lots of credit for it. Absolutely. <laughs> she called me the other day and I was half asleep and she's like, hello, I know you're thinking, why is this bitch calling me? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, not at all. What's going on? And she wanted to ask me about her new song. And the amazing thing was she wanted to ask me an opinion on something. And it makes me feel ultimately super special. So we asked Peter, like, so what does that mean? Like, if you are now a gatekeeper, you white guy from suburban Maryland, on a very commercial radio station, what does that mean for hip hop? Does that mean that hip hop has by default been co-opted? Because like, here you are. I don't know. I mean, I feel like hip hop is in a better place now than before I started doing this. I would break it down on paper and go, let me tell you where we were when I started my underground show in 2007. And let me tell you where I think we are in 2014. And let me show you how many of those artists I broke and supported and worked hard with and talked to the label about and pushed and how many I had an involvement with. I think you'd see a really high percentage. So that was part of his answer. We asked Andrew the same question. It's complicated. I mean, I look, I, I don't think that hip hop is dead. There was some quote, um, Frank Zappa, I think, said, jazz isn't dead, it just smells funny. <laughs> like, 
I don't think hip hop <laughs> is wonderful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that should be our title. Hip hop isn't dead; it just smells funny. But I do think I think hip hop isn't dead; it just smells funny. It always smells a little funky. Huge thanks to Andrew Morantz uh, and The New Yorker magazine for letting us borrow Andrew for a beat. Definitely check out his story in uh, The New Yorker magazine. It's called Old School. It's a great story. It goes into way more detail than we can get into here. Also, big thanks to Franny Kelly and Ali Shaheed Mohammed, uh, who together they co-host the NPR podcast Microphone Check. And, uh, well, I'm Jad Abumran. I'm Robert Krulwich. Thank you for listening. Oh, and before we go, just one last thing. So, lest you think that, like, hip-hop has arrived at this new, um, like, quote, post-racial situation, which, you know, we, for a second we were like, maybe we are just thinking out loud with Peter. And he was like, no way. No. <laughs> God, I, if there's one thing I could demand that air during this piece, it would be this statement right here. Nothing has driven me more crazy over the course of my time in hip-hop then white people who come up to me and go, you know, and it, it used to be really bad when he first came out. You know, Eminem is just so talented. I don't even listen to hip hop, but Eminem? I mean, now he's good. <laughs> well, if you don't listen to hip hop, why the hell should I care what your <laughs> thoughts on Eminem are? And how do you know that he's good? No, you know that he's white. You know that he's white. And is Eminem good? Yes, it just so happens that he's as good as, you th- as you're as you guessing he is. But that's random. You don't even know that. Eminem could be any, could have been one of the dudes from Millie Vanilli and you would have thought it was great. And that drives me nuts. And so anytime I think about, oh, we're post-racial, just look at what Eminem concerts look like and what the sales look like and you can be instantly reminded that even though Eminem has... No experience that average suburban white America could ever identify with. I mean, culturally, the experience you went through is much more common with someone who went with went through a black struggle than any sort of regular white suburban life. I mean, this is a guy who came up in a rough situation in a million ways, um, was the odd man out all the time, never had anything, and then makes it. And all of a sudden, the fact that people are like, oh, I, I so identify with him. What is it? Why do I identify with a guy who's from a trailer park, um, from a history of drug abuse, who raps about things that I'd be terrified of if a black man was saying it, but I I, I identify with him so much. And then Eminem, because he's amazing, raps about this same thing. He does a song called Dear White America where he tells them, you're an idiot. You let your kids listen to me, but you wouldn't let them listen to anyone else just because I'm white. You're an idiot. And they love it. It's unbelievable. My name is Ayushi Srivastava, and I'm calling from the University of Chicago. Radiolab is supported in part by the National Science Foundation and by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. I'm Ira Flato, host of Science Friday. For over 30 years, our team has been reporting high-quality news about science, technology, and medicine. News you won't get anywhere else. And now that political news is 24-7, our audience is turning to us to know about the really important stuff in their lives. Cancer, climate change, genetic engineering, childhood diseases. Our sponsors know the value 
of science and health news. For more sponsorship information, visit sponsorship.wnyc.org.